Obviously, we're continuing on in the book of Judges. I call this Problems in the East. I love to blame California for all of America's problems and pick on anyone that comes from there. But now we've seen this shift sides, and that's what you're seeing take place is, is sin is going to permeate uh, across the Jordan and all the way to the east. And, and that's a bit of the point that we start off with as we dive in here, because I think it's fascinating as we look at how quickly things can spread, right? Gossip seems to just move like wildfire. If you look at disease and then even worse, sin, it always seems to spread. It always starts off small, maybe even isolated, but containment attempts too often end up being futile. And we've seen that with the disease cycle for the past few years, whether it's there or not, but it just spreads. There's no way they keep it contained. Well, as we continue journeying through the book of Judges, we're going to watch the rapid spread and growth of sin. We've seen it. We've seen it crop up here. We've seen it crop up there. And what we're going to see here is that idolatry is going to multiply and the sin influence is now spread throughout Israel. When I say problems in the east, it's because so far we haven't had a ton of this issue crop up on the other side of the Jordan. We haven't seen it go all through the nation, but what we have to recognize is it's no longer a local issue. The plague is infecting the whole nation. Now, up until this point, and just as a bit of a review, we've been kind of focused on one specific area in Israel. If you've noticed, a lot takes place in the Jezreel Valley. Uh, we've seen Deborah and Barak fighting there. Uh, we've seen Gideon that comes from there. Uh, Shechem, uh, Abimelech, and you go down to Shechem, it's south of there. And we've seen a lot kind of centralized in that region. We started south, and then we've kind of parked in this northern area but the story's shifting now. Now we're going to see the effect of all this on the east side of the Jordan. There's going to be two and a half tribes uh, that are affected heavily there. And then we're going to see that the southern tribes on the west side of the Jordan are also going to get afflicted by uh, the Amorites going over the river and attacking Judah, attacking Benjamin, and also attacking Ephraim. The problems have come all over but before we dive into the core of this story, the core of them turning again against God, we have two minor judges that serve uh, during a time of transition. I look at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 10, and it says, After Abimelech, there arose to defend Israel, Tula, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir in Mount Ephraim. So, You've got a whole lineage, all those guys that are listed there, as funny as their names sound, are all leading men of Issachar, but here you have a man that's a leading ruler in Issachar, a leading man in Issachar, but his home is in Ephraim, which is very typical of the tribe of Issachar, even during the time of Deborah, that whole valley that they won was supposed to be Issachar's territory, and they never seemed to occupy. They never seemed to settle in their own area. And so what we find is here's a judge who's from Issachar, who is ruling or judging in Ephraim. 
And it says, after him arose Jir, a Gileadite, and judged Israel twenty and two years. And he had thirty sons that rode on thirty donkey colts, and they had thirty cities, which are called Havith Jir, unto this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jir died and was buried in Cammon. And obviously with the other one, he ruled for twenty-three years, died, and was buried in Shamir. Now understand this, these are not judgeships that happened, so it wasn't 23 years end and then 22 years. This is not a 45-year period, but instead, the first judge, Tola, goes and starts judging in Ephraim for about a year, and after him, you have Jair ruling on the other side, and what you're going to find out is that these two guys are, are judging at the same time. I'm holding my hands up for a reason. Southern West Jordan, right here in Ephraim, and then the guy... Jair is ruling on the other side of the Jordan where we're going to be talking about actually right in the middle in Gilead where Jephthah is going to come from, where the main controversy is going to take place. And these two people are coming in at the end of Abimelech's reign, his uh, failed kingship. And I have to correct something. Last week I wrote the wrong date down. I wrote 1219 as the end of his reign. And actually it's 1119 BC was the end of his reign. Uh, so correct that. Expunge the record. We'll delete that sermon from live stream. We'll make sure it's all taken care of. I've never made a mistake and Theron can fix that for me. Um, so I was 100 years off there writing the wrong number down. Uh, and these two men serve right after that but in opposite areas. And as I mentioned, one guy's from Issachar ruling in Ephraim, and Shamir is an early name. Uh, most uh, scholars think that's an early name for Samaria. So to understand what's taking place, Issach a guy from Issachar is living in Ephraim in what will be the capital of the northern kingdom after they split after Solomon. So you get a whole bunch of history tied together, but he's in a very key city that will be a key city for a long time. Jair is serving now on the other side of the Jordan in the exact same area that Jephthah is going to liberate from the Am Amorites, Ammonites. But here's the interesting thing. In the story of Jephthah, we're going to see a civil war unfold between Gilead and Ephraim. So where these two men are ruling at the same time, within two decades, these two regions are going to come into a very sharp conflict, and many people from Ephraim are going to die from that. Now, I want us to see something with these two minor judges. One, they judged, they ruled, they helped. They were called by God, which is uniqueness for a judge, called by God for a purpose. What we don't see is a specific enemy that is coming in and oppressing them. And what we can understand is that these two men were called to rule, maybe not battle, maybe not liberate them, but they're called to rule at the same time, and we're going to see more overlap of judges, to help Israel stay true to God. So their ruling would have helped Israel understand that they need to serve the true God. Why? And we may look at this and say, hey, more leaders, that's better. That's typically how we would look at that. More leaders, more people stepping up to the plate. But understand, these aren't people stepping up at their own initiative. These are people that God's called to come rule and understand suddenly we need two judges at the same time. Why would that be? And I want us to understand that as we start seeing more judges in a tighter period of time, it is indicative of a growing degradation of Israel's faith and society. 
As I mentioned at the beginning, sin is moving from hot spots to permeating the whole nation. And we now have, for two decades, two judges ruling in distinctively different areas, one more southern and on the west side, another one northeast, and they're ruling there. And interestingly enough, Israel falls back into sin, and the oppression that's going to take place from the Ammonites is here, moving down through the same region, and we're also going to see the Philistines coming from the west coast and working their way up. And so what we find is that there's a full permeation of the fall away from the Lord and his purpose. And I go back to the illustration. Isn't it fascinating how sin spreads, how it just grows? And what we have now is rebellion and idolatry spreading And I put here, never lose sight of that reality. We must never be lulled to sleep or become nonchalant about the sin we see in the distance. Because Israel's been watching sin at a distance. Some of these tribes have been seeing, oh man, they're getting into idolatry, or they're falling into sin here, or they're being oppressed over there. And what has happened now, and as we come to a a close of of the judges, the end of judges... For, for all intents and purposes, is with Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. Eli is also a judge by definition, by scriptural definition. But Samuel and Eli are going to overlap with Samson, whose oppressors overlap with the Ammonites. In other words, we're at a very condensed period of time where a lot of these important figures that encompass a lot of chapters in scripture are in a very short period of time. Why? Sin has just risen up in a horrible way. It has infected the nation. And we must, as God's people, never be lulled to sleep or be nonchalant about sin, even when we see it in the distance. These two men, though flawed, and I want you to understand, Jair has 30 sons that he puts on donkeys, which would have been a symbol of royalty, and they go and lead in multiple cities. He has a very high king tendency which is not good. Abimelech is going to have that. Gideon's going to have it. And what happens, though these guys are flawed, they are put in two key places in Israel to keep them aligned with the true God. And let's not belittle what they've done. Two decades worth of keeping two regions tied to God. But sadly, as we see over and over, that intermittent period, this transition comes to a close, and we return to the same sad situation. When I first started in Judges, this is one of the points I made. It was just the situation. What is the situation? It's this reoccurring theme, this reoccurring cycle. Judges is filled with these words, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And that's repeated over and over again. Why the long conversation about the spread of sin and the influence of sin and how it's growing from hotspots to all over the nation is because you read those same words, but the cycle in Judges is not at a straight level. It's not the same level of sin. It keeps getting worse, and it keeps spiraling down. And so here you see, as, as God uh, inspired the writer of, of Judges, is that the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, And I want you to notice the details that we go into. There are seven groupings of different gods that they're about to serve. This is the most detailed description of what Israel's fallen into. So we start with the first one. It says, and serve Balaam and Ashtaroth. And we're used to seeing those as the plural form of the Baals that they've served of the Canaanites. And Ashtaroth, his cohort 
mixed blend of one of the prophet uh, goddesses. Uh, and then he goes on. So there's your first set. And this is, and the gods of Syria, and the gods of Zidon, and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the children of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Seven different groupings of gods that come out and forsook the Lord and served not him. And then we see God's response from a holy God, not a petty God. The holy God responds and says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the children of Ammon, which means at the same time. 18 years with Ammon, 40 years with Philistines, and they overlap there. And that year they vexed and oppressed the children of Israel. And now we slip into the the children of Ammon. 18 years, all the children of Israel that were on the other side of Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. Moreover, the children of Ammon passed over Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was sore distressed. And here what we get is an introduction to a two-sided oppression that all begins at this point. So don't get lulled to sleep. We shift into looking at Ammon and the Amorites, but we are not missing the fact that the Philistines are also oppressing at the same time. So the Philistines are along the southwest coast and the Ammonites from the east across the Jordan. It's an oppression that begins as Jair and Tola leave the scene. They die or leave the scene around 1096 or 1095 BC. And then we zero in now on the Ammonites and the 18 years of heavy-handed pressure that Israel endures from them. And we find that during this time, and this is what I want us to know, the idols or the sin multiply. Because what we're seeing now is not just that they grabbed the generic Baal and Ashtaroth of the land, the Canaanites, but now they're just borrowing gods from every portion around them. As one writer notes, the watchdogs of every neighboring people. And let me just go through them again. The local version of Baal, which is the Balaam, we know that plural for Baal, and Ashtaroth. We've we've looked at this. This is what they've been doing up until this point. So they went back to what they always go back to. Then we have some additional gods, the gods of Syria. And if you look through scripture, they're not named. If you go through history, oftentimes their gods were one named Themuz, And then there was a star deity named Athtar, and you're going to find the same thing. There's usually a head god, and there's usually a goddess of love and fertility and all that stuff. The perversion kind of stays the same, but there's different gods. And then the gods of Zidon, which had their own versions of Baal and Astarte. They had a different goddess, but also served the Baals. So they just added in a new Baal on that one. The gods of Moab, which we know one of the head gods of Moab was Shamash, We don't know a lot about him, but when a Moabite king defeats Israel, he writes on a stone that Shamash gave him the victory over Israel. And then the gods of Ammon. And in in the gods of Ammon is a god named Molech who had infant sacrifice attached to him. So you would sacrifice children in the fire. Oftentimes, this is what commentators will grab and say, well, that's what Jephthah did with his daughter. We'll get to that next week, which I don't think he does uh, because it, it misidentifies him. But that's where a lot of people think he did with those gods. And then the gods of the Philistine, which would include the god Dagon, which was the grain god. And we'll see that with the battles with David. And then they're going to bring the ark with Samuel. And then Dagon's going to fall down and bow down. So we, we see Dagon. But also, the Philistines had a god named Beelzebub. 
which when you translate it literally means Lord of the Flies, but flies were referenced to demons, and so they literally served the God, which would be the Lord of the demons, which I didn't take long to figure out who they're referring to there, right? So they're going to literally worship Satan right there in front of them. So what you have is Israel's God's idols, sin has multiplied. And if you drag it all the way down to the Philistines, you got God's people worshiping God's enemy, Satan. That's how far we've gone. And so as we've come to expect, the consequences unfold. God sends two groups against Israel, and they vexed and oppressed, and Israel was sore distressed. And I want us to understand when you see those descriptive words, it's talking about how intense the pressure was from these two directions. These are concurrent afflictions, not, not coordinated, but concurrent attacks. These two people, the Philistines and Ammonites, they would have fought each other for territory as well. And they attack and afflict Israel. And then the story starts focusing on the oppression caused by the Ammonites. And as I mentioned before, it's going to be the two and a half tribes on the east of Jordan. That's Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh on the east. And then across the Jordan was Ephraim, Judah, and Benjamin. And just like with Gideon and the oppression from the Midianites, and by the way, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and the Moabites never attack at the same time because they're going to conquer each other. So when the Midianites came into Israel, Ammonites were a part of that group. And you can be assured that now the Ammonites are coming. They have already conquered Moab and Midianites. And so they're all kind of collectively moving, but one is leading. And right now the Ammonites are in charge of that region, and now they're afflicting Israel. But just like the Midianite oppression, it says that Israel, and some translation will say that they were crushed under them. That's exactly the implication you want to get. When you're sorely distressed, it means that they were grinding the life out of Israel. And the story of Judges, which is inspired by God for all Christians, all of our growth and benefit, shows us the ever-deepening cycle of sin. And what we see in the prolification of idols is that God's people are basically worshiping everything the world has to offer. Seven different gods listed, and that's for a reason. That number is used to show some sense of completion. And what you're getting and what the picture that is being described to us in Judges is that Israel has reached the point that they will take everything the world has to offer. If the world tosses it up for worship, they will worship it. Now, in their world... That is going to be tied to these idols, and it almost becomes easy to define. I think we're guilty of the same pursuit today as this church. Because I would ask this question, how quickly and blindly do we chase the religion this world suggests and demands? And right away, most people are saying, I don't follow the world's religion. To which I will counter this, don't be deceived, this world's philosophy is most certainly its religion. And so as we look at the nation of Israel, and, and I was just confronted with this idea, as we come to what they're doing, as we look at seven different segments of gods, a complete number depicting what we do, showing us that Israel is chasing anything the world puts up, anything but God, how does that relate to us? We do the same. And the world chucks up a philosophy and we gobble it up. 
We Christianize it, but just as foolishly as it would be for Shechem to make Biel Berith the Lord of the covenant and pretend like they have a covenant-keeping God is the same foolishness on our part to grab this world's philosophy and say, you know what, I'll, I'll adopt it. It works. It weaves in. I want us to see something about ourselves as we look at the nation of Israel. We're doing the same thing. We're gobbling up this. And take note, sin comes with consequences. Not because God is some vindictive personality, that's what most people want to accuse him of, but instead because he is holy and cannot let sin slide. Because he desires what is best for us, and that is most definitely not false religion and worldly practice. So graciously, and I want us to see this, graciously, consequences unfold to change us. God has graciously sent the Ammonites and the Philistines so that he can change Israel's heart. He's not vindictively doing this. He's graciously doing it. So it doesn't come as any surprise that this oppression functioned as God designed it. The pressure of this pagan people upon Israel exposed their sin, destroyed their trust in man-made gods and its solutions, and pushed Israel to appropriate, and I highlight that word, appropriate desperation. This is biblical desperation. Look at 10 through 16. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians, one, and from the Amorites, two, from the children of Ammon, three, and from the Philistines, four, the Zidonians, five, and the Amalekites, six, and the Maonites, seven, again, for completion. So you served everything the world has to offer, seven different sets of gods. I freed you from seven oppressing people. There's more people that he's freed him from. The idea of Scripture is to tell you, I have completely freed you every single time. You have completely followed the world. And then God says, did oppress you, and you cried to me, and I delivered you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Wherefore, I will deliver you no more. And he goes on, go and cry unto the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, this is, I call repentance round two, we have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. And they put away the strange gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. I want us to see something here. Uh, Israel turns now to God and acknowledges their sin of both forsaking God and chasing the world. Repentance round number one. And I want you to note that because we're going to talk about that, not to pick it apart, but to see it for what it really was. And then God replies by highlighting seven distinct times of deliverance he has provided. In other words, you have completely followed the world and I have completely delivered you from that. And after each deliverance, Israel forsook God, the God who delivers, to serve some man-made creation. This is the cycle of Israel. We are in trouble. Let's go back to God to get some help. And for this first round of repentance, the kind that we give so easily, they got reprimanded. And that's exactly what God's doing. We've sinned and we've served false gods. And God says, get help from them. 
He reprimanded him. I will deliver you no more. Go get help from the gods you have chosen. Now, I want us to understand something about this first round of repentance, because what we first think is it wasn't sincere. They were very insincere. They were making up their words. And I want us to not fall into that trap. This was not a false words from them. It was sincere words. And I hope you can catch what I'm emphasizing. They said what they were really thinking. They said a lot, but it lacked real depth. And I want us to examine our typical repentance and see if it looks a lot like this first round. We say, I've sinned. I should not have done this. I dislike the consequence of this. But it rarely affects us to our core. It rarely sees God properly, which is in his holiness, and recognizes the true desperation that sin causes, the alienation from the one true God. That's how we repent as well. Israel is sincere in their words. They have acknowledged sin. They're not, that's not a lie. They're not pretending. We've sinned. We have forsaken you. We've followed other gods. We've broken your law. But it's all words. It doesn't deal with the depth of what's taken place. Their desperation isn't to what it needs to be. They have lost sight that sin brings alienation from the one true God. It is a repentance that is sincere in words, but in word only, and affects only superficial change. It is not life-altering repentance. This is the central point of this whole sermon. This is the main gist as we look at what Israel is doing. As we watch them dive into everything the world has to offer, and as we watch God remind them that he always delivers, that he always rescues, that he's a God that doesn't change, that he's there, he is confronting in them this idea of a first-tier type of repentance that we so often give to God. And that's why I want you not to get in the trap of thinking they were insincere, because I know how I look at my own call to God in sin. I sincerely acknowledge it as sin. I sincerely acknowledge that I followed something else. And then I realize I sincerely keep it to words. That there's no movement, that there's no deep change, that there's no deep desperation that ties to that sin. And so God confronts that in them. He exposes that in them, which is hopefully exposing that in us as well, to which Israel now repented. And it sounds very similar. They again acknowledge their sin, but they do something else while also acknowledging God's right and justice in whatever he chose to do. We've sinned against you, and whatever you do is right. Now, they next petition him to deliver. Don't miss that. Please deliver us, we pray thee. And that is the idea of petition. And I put here, they petition him to deliver, but without being presumptuous. And I want you to think a little bit when we repent. God, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. This is wrong. I'm acknowledging this. I'm sincere in my heart about this. But what we don't do is see the desperation, the depth that we should go in our desperation, understand the alienation, to understand the holiness of God. And we turn to God, and there's an expectation that God will now do what we want. I call it the genie of the Bible syndrome. I will rub the lamp. He will pop out. I will say the magic words. He will give me my treats. 
He'll give me what I want. Because this is how it works, right? We go to God and we get what we want. And that was repentance round one. Sincere in the words, but not in the change that would take place. Now we see them going to God, I pray thee. Those are critical words in that prayer. Deliver us, I pray thee. We beg of thee. We petition you to do, not presume that you will do. And then they do something else. They take action, not just say words, and put away the idols and serve God exclusively. And I hope we can recognize the difference between this and what was done before. In both instances, they acknowledge sin. I think if we look at our repentance, we typically acknowledge sin. But here, they see themselves as sinners who can make no demands of the true and holy God. It's one thing to acknowledge your sin. It's quite another thing to realize you are a sinner, that you are the one that has broken the law, that you are the one that when God looks down, he's going to see sin, right? Which is when we look at our salvation, we know we have the covering of Christ's blood and the forgiveness of sins. We understand it. But because of that, we start getting shallow. We start saying everything's no big deal. We don't see sin like it should be seen. And that's one of the huge differences from one end of that portion to the next is they start understanding what it means to be a sinner in the eyes of a holy and true God. Then they petition without assumption for his direct working and altering of their circumstances. I actually love seeing that there. When I go to pray, I still pray to God, and I can petition God, and I can say, God, work in this situation. When someone is sick, I I pray for a miracle. I ask him to intervene. He's not bothered by that. He loves to hear from his children. But when we presume upon God that he will do whatever we say, well, now that's a whole different way of approaching God. And so here we see them come to him and beg him, I pray thee, without presumption, without assumption, and then without bartering, they begin to act, to actually do what God's children should do. They reject actively this world's religion and philosophy and fully and exclusively worship the Lord their God. And that pushes us, right, to think for a second about ourselves. Do we act without the barter attached to it? Do we reject completely what this world says? We push it aside. And what do we typically do? We reject the portion that is obviously wrong to us, and we find some redeeming feature of something we want to keep. Wow, but I I could use that. That's handy. There's nothing wrong with that part. That's not what Israel did here. 100% reject this world's philosophy and religion, and 100% commit to God and his word. And then in God's perfect timing, we find that he responded. And his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Uh, God was done, or the word you would see there is impatient, with the misery caused by the Ammonites against his people, which tells us something. God is not distant from us. We walk through judges, and, and oftentimes people see a puppet master up there just doing whatever he wants and making the play look like he desires it and forget that he's intricately involved in our life and in our world. He is not uncaring or hardened to our affliction and persecution. Instead, we find him acutely aware of what unfolds for his children. God sees the heart of his people. He sees the depth of their repentance, of their biblical desperation. And I'm going to hit it again because this is the main point. We need that depth of desperation. 
an understanding of our depravity and therefore our need. And as believers, too often we get casual about sin. We start saying, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in him. And we just blow it off like it's nothing. We don't understand the rift that that brings. We don't understand the damage that is caused by sin. We don't feel the reality of a holy God. But when we have the depth of desperation that we see transition in Israel, then we are prompted to a depth of repentance. And it's a repentance that involves real change as we acknowledge the depth of our depravity, the depth of our need, and see it in light of our holy God. We must see sin from his perspective. We must see sin in light of who he is, not who we are. Why do we feel good about our sin? Because there's somebody that's worse than us out there. There's somebody that's worse. But see, you're horrific compared to a holy God. See, we see the depth of our depravity when we see him. And then we recognize we cannot fix the issue within ourselves, and so we cast ourselves upon his grace and mercy and take action accordingly. We don't earn his grace and mercy, but we act within the realms of that. Truly, we are desperate, but we serve the God of mercy and grace who will bring about his solution. And as we wrap up this morning, I'm going to read a whole host of verses. This is uh, chapter 10, 17 through chapter 11, verse 11. And we're going to be introduced to the person that God is going to bring to bear to rescue Israel. I want us to see something in him because he has been misrepresented uh, through his vow that we'll talk about next week and through a misinterpretation of the vow and how it unfolded. They've, they've missed who he is. And they've seen him as a pagan. He's not. He's actually one of the more intelligent figures you're going to find in all the scripture, comparable to David. Uh, you're going to find him being very well versed in God's word. And he's going to understand God's law. And so we're going to see him. And I hope that you can understand as he's brought to bear, he's God's solution. And he's actually God's man living that way. And we're going to get an introduction to him. And next week, we're going to dive into the battle and his vow and what unfolds with Ephraim and go from there. But let me start reading in verse 17. Then the children of Ammon were gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled themselves together and encamped in Mizpah. And the children and princes of Gilead said one to another, What man is he that will begin to fight against the children of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. In other words, Gilead and Manasseh is going to be the hub. This is the capital. And you know it's the capital because where do the Ammonites gather? At Gilead. And it's the princes of Gilead that are talking about what all of us are going to do. How are we going to handle this situation? Then you get a little bit of background. Now, Jephthah the Gileadites, you know where he's from, was a mighty man of valor. And he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead, that's his dad who's named after the town, begat Jephthah. And Gilead's wife bare him sons. And his wife's sons grew up and they thrust out Jephthah. And said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Which would give you the idea that Jephthah was the firstborn in that scenario. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah, empty men, people who didn't have anything. They had no land. They had just problems, debt, and issues. And went out with him. And it came to pass in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. 
And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we may fight with the children of Ammon. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? <coughs> and why are ye come unto me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon, and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And notice the second part of their statement. Uh, adding to this, you'll lead, you'll rule over us. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord, and that's Yahweh, be witness between us if we do not so according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah, because he couldn't go to Gilead, because that's where the Ammonites are. So he's where Israel is gathered. And I emphasize the times that Gilead is swearing before Yahweh, and Jephthah is saying, if Yahweh gives me victory, and then he goes and commits before the Lord, Yahweh, in Mizpah, and so just to get a little background, Jephthah, who's exiled from his hometown of Gilead, note this, not his fault. He doesn't pick his mom. He doesn't pick his dad. And so to no fault of his own, he's kicked out of his hometown. And now he sought around 1077 BC to rescue Israel, specifically by his own clan and by the people who kicked him out. What's taking place? A wide-reaching persecution. Gilead is the lead town in this region, and you see that on the east of Jordan, and now they're picking him to rule. He has been living in the land of Tob, and it could be for a very extended period of time, which is deep in the Harain wilderness. He's Wait, go east, outside of the land of Israel, northeast, and you keep going, and there he is. Now, while he's there in that place, a band of outcasts have gathered around him. It's a group that he took and built into a well-trained military unit. And then right away, people think this is some pagan, self-consumed individual that's going around raiding and gaining from everyone else. And that's the wrong implication. Scripture gives a clear picture of him as he comes to rescue Israel, that instead he was going around and protecting cities and settlement, much like David had done. And if you read through David's history, David is outcast with Saul and people who are in debt or had a problem with the, the nation. So I'd say that the bums and the losers of the world gathered to him. And from that group, he created a, a unique and elite military unit. Jephthah has done the same. And as we look at Jephthah, what I hope we can see is that God's chosen solution showed godly dedication and God-given intelligence, which is actually seen in very few people in Scripture. As I mentioned before, he's too often defined by his vow. And I'm not saying that his vow um, was perfect in that sense, but I, I hope when we get to it next week, we can see from his character and from Scripture and from Leviticus chapter 27 that his vow was not to murder his daughter, but instead dedicate her in that scenario, and that he was not a rash man. This was not a guy who makes quick emotional decisions, but instead was actually very qualified uh, to be a leader. And sometimes we miss what is there, his ability and complete dedication and knowledge of God and his word. As I mentioned, he is not a self-consumed barbarian. Instead, he took the leftovers of this world and built an army that protected God's towns and villages. 
and no doubt was rewarded by them. This is a man of such a reputation, and I want you to imagine this, that when Israel needed that certain someone to take the lead. Now let me just paint the picture again. 20 years almost, you're oppressed and you're beaten down. And now the nation of Israel has repented. They have come back to God and I'm sure have put their back against the wall and said, no more Ammonites. So what do the Ammonites have done? We're going to gather at your head town and we're going to now annihilate you in war. So they're gathered in Mizpah and they're looking around and I just want you to realize that out of the elite of the elite, the people that lead on this side of the tribe, they're not seeing anyone they think can handle this. They're thinking to themselves, we're doomed. We don't have the person we need. And Jephthah is of such value, so unique, so obvious, that Gilead, the elders of Gilead, humble themselves and ask him to lead and rule. The guys that ran him out of town are called to seek him out and have him lead, both in war and in peace. And I want you to understand, this is no slight disagreement. This was life-altering for Jephthah. He's run out of the town. The elders of Gilead most likely contained some of his half-brothers. All of them complicit in, and understand this, sinfully expelling Jephthah from town. Why would they do this? I'm guessing that maybe his leadership and his character and his ability to, to rally the troops and train had already shown up. Don't neglect that Abimelech, if you're, if you're a half-brother of Jephthah, and you've read anything about Gideon and his 70 sons, and then the Abimelech, who murders 70 sons, well, you can understand, that I'm not saying I excuse him, you understand why the half-brothers are like, let's get rid of this guy, because who knows where there's a stone and a sword and we're done for it, right? So there are reasons tied to the history. Abimelech and what he, he did could have influenced their decision here, could have influenced what they were doing. It's still sinful what they've done. And then Without ignoring the elephant in the room, Jephthah doesn't just casually say, hey, thanks for asking me back, kind of idea. Jephthah walks through their past disloyalty and pain. He does it twice. He confirms that. We also find that Jephthah humbles himself and accepts. What does a proud person do in this moment? Good luck with the Ammonites. He's ruling militarily. He is succeeding with his band of soldiers right in the middle of where the Ammonites are. The Ammonites don't want to deal with Jephthah. They know him. He is a recognized threat to them. He is, what I say, beating them, even though they're oppressing and crushing Israel. Yet he humbles himself and accepts. He asks them twice to acknowledge their intent, which I think, given the dynamic between them, is wise. And I want you to see something from the start, acknowledges that victory would be from the Lord. Read his question again. If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? He's verifying their intent, the depth of their intent, not just using me because I can fight. But notice he doesn't say, if I deliver you, but instead says, if God delivers them through me. If God will work and deliver you through me, through his working through me, then will I rule? And then notice at the end, he commits himself before the Lord, Yahweh, in Mizpah. They're all gathered in battle. What do you do to rally the troops? You stand in front of the troops and you say, I'm here. I'm, gonna, I'm going into battle. You know what I can do? 
Have you not read about what I've done? Have you not seen how the Ammonites are afraid of me? I've been right in the heart of their territory, protecting towns and villages. I've been winning. And don't worry, me and my guys are here and we're going to stick with you. No, he does not. He goes to Mizpah and who does he commit to? He makes a public commitment to the Lord. And I want us to get something about his character because it helps us as we walk into the next portion about his life. Jephthah served God first. He was committed to God's glory and new victory came through him. Jephthah was God's solution. His chosen man for the job and Jephthah knew he served the Almighty and he served the Almighty's purposes. He was without a doubt a gifted man, but he's one who never lost sight of the giver of gifts nor the real source of victory. He was, when I say naturally gifted, he was a standout individual. He was someone who could command the group, who could go into battle, but he has not lost sight of who brings real victory. He was God's chosen servant who did not lose sight of who he was serving. And then I just put as a question, can the same be said of us? Could that describe us? Could we be God's chosen servant who doesn't lose sight of who we are serving? Now, to wrap this up for this morning, what can we see from this story so far? Well, sin spreads like wildfire and seems to grow in its intensity. And that's what the seven different gods groupings were for. The sin is, is multiplying and it's getting stronger. Israel has given us that sad picture throughout this period of Judges, and we see the intensity grow. It is a clarion call to recognize how quickly and completely we can chase the world's religion, and it is a religion, and neglect or even reject the one true God. And here's my question for all of us. Are we seeing how quickly and wickedly we have become? Have we recognized how fast we follow the world? What shocks me and, and, and scares me, actually, because I start looking at my own life, because that's what we're supposed to do, is I look out and watch people who I would have considered bulwarks of the faith, that they would be, be the stable foundation points, and I watch them chase the world's religion. That's not what they call it, but it's what they're doing. And I said, are we seeing that? Are we recognizing that? Are we catching that in ourselves? Are we in tune to what sin does and how quickly it works? And that sin we know comes with a consequence, which hopefully will drive us to deep and biblical desperation about our sin. Not just a shallow repentance to get out of trouble. Instead, we put away what is of this world completely and fully follow God, accepting as just his action. And that's critical. True repentance is not manipulative repentance. It doesn't go to God and say, well, I will set aside the world and I will serve you if you give me, and by the way, Jacob was one who's the worst at that. When he's at Bethel, at Luz, and he's there and he has a dream, he says to God, if you will do this for me, then I will serve you with my whole heart. That's actually a horrible commitment that he made there. It's not something we should hold up and say, oh, let's do like Jacob. Actually, don't do like Jacob. Serve God without giving him a, 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 a a, a treat he has to give you without saying to him, you better do this for me. And what we see is Israel's actually doing that. We accept as just what he decides to do while still praying faithfully for his mercy and grace and his intervention. We call on him in prayer and petition to work and trust that what he does, no matter what it is, is just and fair. 
And I put, but are we that deep and biblically desperate and repentant? I'm afraid we love the shallow end far too much and never think to venture towards the deep end. We love shallow repentance because we have our feet on the ground and we're in control. But we never venture to where God wants us to do in repentance. Yet God is not surprised by what unfolds. Our most holy God has his plan and he acts upon that through his people. Jephthah has been prepared by God through all of his life to serve now in this specific and victorious role. What would have been better preparation than to be thrust out of Gilead, the leading town, to be spurned with all the natural giftedness that God's given you, to have a whole group of outcasts sent to you, to be victorious in battle, to be positioned in life, to then come back and serve the Lord in this way. I'm going to give you the end of his life. He only rules for six years. This is not a young man. This is not a guy at the start of it all. He spent a lifetime serving God and wondering, what in the world am I doing out here? And now we see him brought back as God's solution. And then he does that with a clear connection to his Lord and Savior. After all that time, he still commits to the Lord. He still shows that the Lord is his priority, which, ha- which should have us thinking, could I be God's solution? One, and would I step up and serve? By the way, I just want you to know, in Corinthians, it tells us that we're ambassadors. We're left to be a light, that we are God's servant, and that we are supposed to step up to serve. And as we watch Jephthah in his life, we recognize that God gives no excuse for any of us not to step up and serve. Jephthah did. And so, as we prepare to enter the battle, which will be next week, we find that though God's people have been swept up in sin, they have repented deeply recognizing the affront of that sin to a holy God, and they have sought God's solution to lead them, even though that meant eating humble pie uh, in a very drastic way in overcoming sin's consequences. And it's a solution that God has prepared, who willingly steps up, committed to his Savior. Israel has a lot of bad that we see. Sin keeps getting deeper, but I want us to see something in Israel right now. They repent deeply. They follow through with what God makes clear. And the person that God has prepared steps up. And I put in my notes, I hope the same will be said of us. I hope we're a people that repent deeply, that seek God's solution. And I hope as God's solution is sought, the person that lives in that time and the people that live in that time all step up to serve God. God. 